KZSU, Stanford, 90.1 FM. I'm Mark Mono. This is the Henry George Program. Show all about housing, politics, and tenant issues. We have had on the show twice before Shanti Singh to talk about what has been happening in California in the wake of COVID to keep tenants away from eviction. As you may have heard, the clock has run out federally on eviction moratoria, but California has passed one more round of eviction moratoria slash landlord bailouts that lasted until uh, late September. We talk about exactly how we got here, how the sausage was made, and what the future looks like for uh, tenants. We also get a little bit more uh, stuff such as the San Francisco Community Land Trust. One quick note, this was recorded before any of the federal stuff basically was finalized, so we don't really talk about that. Uh, This is California-centric. Without further ado, let's uh, let's get into it. So, uh, so welcome back one more time, Shanti. Uh, let's talk about where we are, uh, how things are going. How, how are you doing? Uh, I'm tired, very tired. <laughs> um, you know, just uh, we got we got a renewal of protections, but you know, it was a hot mess to say the least. I'm sure you're tired than most, but like just like look like looking over, remembering like it's this process feels like it's you know attempting to addle everyone. Like, we're, we're finally, I mean, putting aside the fact that a lot of the world is by no means going back to normal right now, but in America, in California especially, we're kind of getting back to normal. But, like, you look back at, like, this whole process of, of you know, uh, the anti-eviction protections, as it were, during this whole thing, and, like, it's like there's been like five cycles of bite-sized extensions. It's, I mean, big question is why? Why did this happen? <laughs> like, and I'm trying to like piece together like just this entire history. I like I have like no memory of January. I don't think I was awake during January. It's like what? Well, what a weird time. But uh, what, what, like, do you do you feel like do you understand the strategy of making it all these tiny extensions like this? Yeah, I mean there isn't one. There wasn't a strategy. It was really just we're loath to extend it past the state. We just want this pandemic to be over. It and you know maybe we can extend it later. You know it will leave the option open. That's kind of how they did it because with January and June specifically, which is the last two rounds of this, right? This it, you you have the budget process, and so they were basically saying we'll extend it to the budget process and then we'll reassess and then we'll extend it again to the next budget process and then we'll maybe we'll reassess although now they're I don't think they're going to reassess again unfortunately so yeah it feels like this is this is the end of the line we're back now to to normal as it were but it's it's doesn't feel doesn't feel like a real uh you know sense of conclusion here no no and yeah, I think it it is kind of just saying like, okay, well, we don't want to do this anymore. Is is sort of picking a, that game of picking a magic date, which we were very much not trying to engage in from the tenant side. Yeah. So where we last left off, we talked two times with updates last year, middle of the year, and towards the end of the year. And at the end of the year, like we're t- like one of these magic dates, and you know, uh, you were complaining that they set the magic date at a time in which it was really inappropriate, like end of January, you know, you know, too early to really get the set, like next legislation in, in you know, in, in set, but they did pump out SB 91. And like, I, what was the history of that again? I'm trying to even, like remember what happened. Yeah. What happened was, you know, to kind of anticipate, well, if way back in August, there was an attempt um, to pass, you know, sort of 
rent and mortgage forbearance. So it was it was rent forgiveness and mortgage forbearance. That was AB fourteen thirty six, and then the governor scrapped it and just pushed his own thing at the last minute. And then that what that had the thing that he put in at the last minute had an expiration date of January. And then so this time to kind of get ahead of the problem, uh, the problem of things happening closed door last minute, etc. We were like, let's preemptively sort of introduce our own proposal to extend this. And that was AB 15. That was introduced and spearheaded by uh, my assembly member, David Chu. So we were trying to get ahead of it with AB 15. Assembly member Chu was as well. And all the co-sponsors um, who were more uh, more progressive minded people in the state legislature. Um, and the idea was, OK, we're going to get all this out. We'll have a vehicle for at least starting to negotiate um, with you know the apartment association and all the people who are going to oppose it, um, we will get our demands on paper, um, and we will you know have some sort of control over the process at least of making these protections. And hmm. that was unveiled in advance by two months. So we got the we started moving on this in um, in December. That's when that's when Assemblymember Chu unveiled AB fifteen, uh, the very beginning of December, end of November. And what ended up happening again was at the last minute, um, it was completely scrapped by the governor and leadership. And then they came up with SB 91 at the last minute on their own without really any meaningful input. There was no there was no table negotiating table to speak of. So, so like the magic date in its way, like it was picked at the end of January. It didn't really like matter, I guess, in the end, like Gavin can just wave a wand and then everyone puts out the bill he wants at the last second no matter what yeah that 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 basically seems like what it is um and uh, you know i mean it's between the big three it's between it's between newsom it's between pro tem atkins it's between speaker rendon uh, mm. so it's really like it's happening in the leadership um and, and in terms of who they're you know in terms of who the folks in the Newsom administration are bringing to the I guess not the table, but like, you know, bringing in versus not bringing in, it's very hard to know. But that's really where all of this stuff is being cooked up. So it's not really, you know, if you look at it, what happened with AB 15, um, it's not even like it's was there. There was a proposal that was cooked up by the legislature, and I guess with AB 1436 too, twice. The legislature put their own solutions, like individual assembly members put their own solutions forward uh, and senators put their own solutions forward two times. And then that they were completely scrapped. So in terms of like who was actually doing the legislating, it was almost like the majority of the legislature wasn't even legislating on this. They tried, but it's uh, the system works. I, it's, it's weird. I mean, it's I, the process is, is whack. But like as far as end result goes, what's the biggest difference between the Chew bill and you know Gavin's bill essentially? Uh, with what's you know what was good that was left out, what was bad that was put in? Um. What was, oh gosh, now I'm trying to remember everything. That we <laughs> it's a long time ago. It was such a long time ago. I mean, we wanted additional, well, certain things we wanted. We wanted additional protections um, against, you know, harassment. This was all, and, and mind you, this was all before the rent relief program uh, was certain because back then, you know, we didn't know who the president was going to be. We didn't, that was going to affect how much federal stimulus or rent relief was going to come down the, the line, right? We didn't know what kind of uh, federal environment we were going to be in and how much money the state would be getting. Um, 
So it was very much like in that environment of uncertainty. Um, but some of the, the bad stuff that made it in, uh, that we were trying to take out, for example, um, once we kind of knew that the Biden administration was coming in, which was like this was early January, right? Um, I mean, we knew that he won before that, but, you know. You always had to, Mike Lindell's going to come up with his, you know, last minute change. Who knows? Right. right. So it was actually AB 15 and 16. AB 15 was going to handle the eviction protections. And then AB 16 was going to handle the establishment and setting up rent relief, right? We weren't initially planning to set up the rent relief before January 31st, or sorry, because we didn't want to rush it, right? We didn't want to rush and have a poorly implemented program, which with the benefit of hindsight, I'm, I'm sure people have, people know what I'm getting at, <laughs> um, but, so California got two point seven billion, and that was from the big stimulus bill. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, and of yeah, we, we we that was yeah, and now we have now that's up to I believe five point two billion with the second round of uh, hmm. uh, stimulus funding. So that's how much rent relief money we have um, from the feds. None of it's coming from like state funds. That's coming from the feds. So if that did if that didn't happen. Sacramento, would they have like you know passed the hat, raised some money, or would they have just said like, well, there's there's no rent relief fund? I really don't know. I think they would have raised some money, but I don't think it would have been enough money. Um, but yeah, I mean, in terms of um, in terms of what you know we were trying to do with AB fifteen, first of all, it was it was supposed to cover all of twenty twenty one, right? Um, we we meant to extend this the entire year, right? Which is not happening now. But we put yeah. that out in January, like of of this year. We said January first, twenty twenty two. We're going till at least then. So that was that was thing one. Um, there were uh, more sort of uh, protections. There were some there were some things with uh, some protections for folks in mobile home parks. Um, just longer dates of these protections in general. Um, we also wanted to put in some penalties for harassment and, and we wanted to, this is, and this is very important. We did not want to preempt local municipalities from passing stronger protections. We were trying very much to change that because that preemption had been snuck in by somebody in of the big three. I don't know who, um, back in August where they were basically saying you, you know, jurisdictions like no local con local control for everything else except tenant rights right uh yeah so if you want to pass something stronger governing non-payment than the than the bar that we that we set at the state level we're not going to let you do that and so we were very much trying not to preempt that um because and it continues to be a serious issue um yeah i feel like that that snuck in in august and that took that was surprised everyone in august you know it's like people were like oh we'll get to this later and then the hammer was down it's like no sorry you'll never get a chance again with this and i feel like every time through now all the localities i think they you know they expect it and like a lot of times they even you know kind of enjoy the fact that they're not on the hook you know santa clara county as far as the latest pass because we're like trying to like you know push it's like okay we're sitting here waiting for our God Gavin to, you know, pass the next thing, but we don't know what's going to be. Please, you know, please get ready. Please do stuff yourself in like Santa Clara County, for instance, only put protections on unincorporated areas and everything else. Like, well, our council's a little bit scared. Uh, you know, uh, we're, it's not sure it's legal. We're just going to sit back. And it's like, I don't know. It's, they, they've been trained well. Yeah. Yeah. Seriously. And, and, you know, I mean, that there, is a, there was one other piece, too, that now that I'm remembering it, that 
there was a requirement that had been put in there back in August to like that that you had to pay twenty five percent of the rent you owed to not be evicted by the sure. the, the expiration period. So it wasn't a lump sum. You'd have to pay twenty five percent every month. But by the time protections expired, you had to pay 25%. And we figured they put that in there as a SOP to the landlord so that they would recoup at least some of their money. Uh, of course, there are a lot of people who, you know, over six, most people over, if you couldn't pay your rent one month, it was harder to pay it the next month. So it was getting harder and harder for people to meet that 25%. And we were arguing back in January, like, well, we didn't like it in the first place. But then we were also like, okay, well, now we know that there's going to be rent relief funds. You don't need this 25% requirement, right? You can take it out because presumably like people or landlords are going to be getting their money back and they kept it anyway. Um, they just postponed the date that you owe it. And then they, now they've kept it a third time. And it's kind of just a completely unnecessary at this point, theoretically, you would think, because theoretically, everyone, according to Governor Newsom, everyone's going to get all the landlords are going to get 100% of their money back. But even back then, they were the landlord was going to get eighty percent of their money back, um, and and it was it was really weird that twenty five percent like why it continued to persist. Um, so that's another kind of example of just you know something that was really baffling that 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 we're kind of stuck with. Yeah. So I mean, okay. So we're in like the new the new you know as it were the new eviction moratoria or the you know the new landlord bailout as it were. But like before that, the last pass. As far as a rental assistance goes, it was you kind of. I mean, this is best I understand. You had a choice of either you, you know the tenant has to pay twenty five percent on an ongoing basis, and that just goes to the landlord, and then they kind of deal with the debt later in small claims court or whatever, or you can go through the rental assistance program in which uh, they adjudicate it. The landlord gets eighty percent, and as far as I understand, like it was. I guess a surprise or at least most of this money did not end up being dispersed because landlords said like 80% no thanks I don't want 80% I would rather just kind of uh, you know put the screws on hard and is that why the new one is now saying okay you get 100% you know this is a full bailout is that's at least is that is that the right narrative or am I wrong on details no, no, that's the right narrative. And honestly, I mean, I'll, I'll be upfront. They didn't believe us, us being tenant advocates. They didn't believe us when we said that, you know, uh, now that's not to say that we were advocating for 100% compensation for landlords. Not That's not really the angle we were going for. But, you know, we they really didn't believe that landlords would turn down an 80-20 deal. And they're like, that's a sweet deal. It is a sweet deal, in my opinion. But I'm, well, we're going through a major I'm pandemic. I'm not naive the, enough to believe that like every landlord was going to take it. Sure. Um, and they also like that if you're if you were a tenant and your landlord didn't participate, they didn't, didn't want to play ball. You only got 25 percent of the money back that you had to pay them, which was that minimum 25 percent requirement that I was just saying was pretty arbitrary. So, but they might get the back end in small claims court later. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Exactly. So. like I guess that's the thing. Like landlords have to bet. Like, but like that's still that's a lot of effort, at least. To oh, in small to go to small claims. I, I mean, we're just kind of like there's some risk. I don't know. Like eighty percent, you know, burden the hand. I that's uh, it's kind of surprising. It's so so many. Like this is. I mean, it's not just a majority. It's like a wide, wide, wide majority turned down the eighty percent deal. 
Yeah, it's hard to tell who turned it down and who didn't, like, but just beyond, like, just the, the anecdotal stuff that we have from all the cases that we've seen on the ground. But I will say, like, I think the 80-20, if you were, if you were a landlord who was, like, really hurting and you had mortgages to pay and stuff, you were probably more likely to take that. But if you can just wait, you know, if, and if you have a lawyer already and they know how to do stuff in small claims, and, and, and you know, and we are seeing in San Francisco, there's a, notorious uh, Bay Area eviction law firm called Zach's Friedman Patterson. And uh, I think like I've heard that they're, you know, allegedly, allegedly, I haven't looked at the court filings. I don't want to get sued by them. But um, but that they're that they're already starting to go after tenants for for debt, even though it's pre- technically prohibited by state law that you're not supposed to go after debt and small claims until now, November 1st. But if you've got a lawyer and you've got money, you can try pretty much anything. And yeah, I don't, I don't mean to say like the risk for them is like that they're going to lose because it's hard for them as much as, you know, maybe you're just, you know, their tenants just going to be bankrupt and not have any money to pay out. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, 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 that that's a fair point. It's really hard to suss out all the different decision making uh, on the parts of different landlords, whether it's like small landlords versus corporate landlords, whether it's, you know, landlords who genuinely do have payments coming due versus those who really don't or just sitting on an appreciating property. Like we're, we're, it's, it's been hard to try to like figure out sort of narrative patterns as to who is doing what we're trying. But a lot of folks did, we did anticipate that a lot of people for whatever reason, maybe just purely atavistic behavior would turn down that 80, 20 or feel like they could get a better deal, even if it could be theoretically very hard. Or, I mean, the biggest thing is honestly, you can just intimidate a tenant into leaving. That's just what that's what we see so much. Uh, sure, <laughs> like they'll, they'll just put the squeeze on them; they'll evict themselves. And effectively, that's been happening this whole time a lot. That's the biggest thing that we're seeing is, you know, harassment, intimidation, things like that. And then you, you don't have to do; we don't have to file anything. Um, you don't have to file a single document, really. I mean, in, at least in terms of uh, in terms of eviction. And I think like that that's so hard. The problem is that that's so hard to measure how much that is happening. But from the perspective of someone who, you know, if you're running a tenant hotline, you're hearing that every single day. Yeah, that's a, that's the thing that really we're talking about this last time. But like we only have anecdotal data to work on because this is not tracked. This is like this is there is no real resource here. Uh, I mean, if you want to compare like how much is used, I guess. I mean, I think I was hearing like stats on like of that 2.7 billion, they carved off 1.5 for this assistance. And I think very, very little of it was used. It was like single digit percentages of it was used. Yeah, yeah, it was. And I think like as of a, the, there was a stat in the New York Times maybe like a month ago. And at that point, I think it was something like they'd given out like there were, there were at that point, there were I think 500 million in claims and they'd given out like 20. Uh, I think that was generous, but that was... Uh, it, it, there, it's been also really hard to get the statistics that we were promised about how much they were used. And in some jurisdictions, it was seriously like in the, like you said, in like the one, two, three percent. So hard to figure out what the heck is going on there, too. But there was a whole program by which some of the federal money was goes to the state to administer. And some of the federal money was earmarked for cities. And then the state gave cities several options, but they were really trying to they were really trying to discourage, actively discourage cities from uh, taking their pot of money that they were promised by the feds and like going further with it. They were really trying to get everybody in line with the state program. 
And well, what's what cities ended up uh, doing that? So uh, they, they're called it's called Option C. So it's like, uh, and those cities were uh, uh, San Jose, um, San Francisco, I think uh, Merced, Santa Barbara. Um, I want to say San Bernardino, um, Oakland. Um, so there were a few cities in the Bay Area that kind of chose this option. Solano County somehow got to choose this option, which was interesting. But they huh. kind of were, for a while, a little bit, they were kind of punished for that. Um, you know, I've heard, and again, like, this is this is hearsay, but, you know, I, I have heard from folks in San Francisco, I can't share the exact details, but, like, I have heard that even, you know, the mayor's office and other people found it really frustrating to work with the state on implementation um, because the state was kind of, the state really didn't want people to choose option C, even the organizers did. So like uh, organizers, for example, in LA, like the Healthy LA Coalition, they wanted L- Los Angeles to take that that option where it's like the feds have given you money for you, specifically LA, to like use with it, like with the most latitude and maybe go outside of the state program as long as you're within the federal guidelines of what you want to spend the money on or how you want to spend it or how you want to allocate it, like priority groups and stuff. So the like activists and organizers wanted cities to take the most flexibility, highest flexibility options. And most cities did it, but the ones who did, yeah, I mean, they, they, they ran into problems or so I heard. And that's also why it's been hard for them to get money out the door. Well, what what kind of modifications did they do for their for their local administration? Um, it really differed from place to place. I'm still kind of, I'm personally, honestly, still trying to get a whole like a, a sense of how San Francisco is administering its program. But I know, for example, like in San Jose, like they wanted to like you know identify priority groups based off of like you know not just like AMI, but maybe like a um, you know based off of like whether they had people who'd faced eviction in the past or they wanted to be more flexible, maybe in paying off utility bills, which you're also allowed to do with this money, right? It doesn't have to strictly just go to rent. Um, there are federal guidelines for other rent associated things like utilities. So it was mostly just like defining who the priority groups in your community are for getting the money faster. So the new bill, uh, I guess the, the default is 80% AMI and affected by covid COVID hardship, uh, but a city, if they're administering locally, could they actually make, like, just not have that AMI limit? Could they try to help everybody? I, I don't know. Could you go up to, I, I, or, is that a, or is that a ceiling? Unfortunately not, because the 80% AMI is a federal requirement. Gotcha. Wow. All okay. money is tied to that. That's coming from the feds. If the state wants to do its own program for, and I think the, the landlords, like, I think the apartment association actually wanted the state to cover... Uh, compensation for higher income tenants, but I don't think that went anywhere. Um, so, so the kind of the rules about who gets what is more the fact if it's saturated, if everything's used, you make sure the distribu- distribution is better, more equitable, as opposed to actually ex- like covering more people. Because it sounds like the coverage is limited. Yeah, I mean, the, theoretically, I mean, the, the, I think the idea is that the that cities would be able to make that their own determination of that what that trade off looks like, right? Um, but the eighty percent is the only the only federal requirement is the eighty percent. So that that ceiling's there for everybody. And then the state has its own prioritization levels in the, these bills, but they're very complicated. They're not even complicated, actually. They're too uncomplicated in a sense because it just says it says there's three tiers, but the way that it defines the three tiers is really there's only two. And what I mean by that is the top priority tier is people making under fifty percent of AMI. All right, or and now they've added in if they've faced a eviction a legal eviction or court summons that makes sense and then the second tier just says 
uh, other priority groups as defined by the State Department's in charge of this, and then doesn't explain what any of that is. Uh, uh, it just says, like, other groups to be defined by, like, and then it doesn't provide any detail as to who those groups are or how they're being determined by the state agency level. And then the third tier literally basically just says everybody else. So hmm. there isn't really like a, it's it, it's hard to kind of know unless you're literally working in that state agents, in those state agencies in charge of this, like how they're prioritizing people um, beyond that first tier. And theoretically cities could be able to, with their pot of money, at least with the part of their money that's through the, from the federal allocation that's directly to cities because they do get some of the state pot too. But those bigger cities who are working with those two pots of money, they at least technically could implement their own, uh, you know, tiers or priority tiers or things like that with, uh, and with the uh, federal money that was allocated to cities, as long as it's the only thing that everybody's held to is that 80%. That's for everyone. That's for all the money. All these programs are always I, I, so I don't know a whole lot about the the details. All I've heard is that I guess the they they are recommending that people go to housingiskey.com is the central clearinghouse. But if cities are doing their own thing, is that different? I'm I'm just kind of curious. What what's what as far as you hearing from people going through this process, like how much does this like is does this work? Is it is it sane? And how much is it just a baffling, you know, uh, you know, just maze of 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 rules and whatnot uh it's more the latter <laughs> uh, great we were we were definitely with, with housing is key we were also like some of there were some issues with the rollout to be quite honest um including like tr- language availability which is pretty important for mm. who don't speak english as their primary language or don't speak english at all um there was a lot of language avail- availability and access issues where like applications were not available and many critical languages like there was no chinese language application for a while like it's a pretty big language as far as i understand yeah yeah so like there was there there were issues with that right um and uh then like also like in terms of the there they did have some partner organizations who they gave funding to not not tenants together wasn't one of them but there were other ones that they gave uh, dedicated funding to as like community partners who were supposed to be like helping out with the outreach and support or whatever for the program. And like they would give like the, there were some weird contacts for those. Like someone I know like had her personal phone number, cell phone number put on the website as like the organization's like phone number. <laughs> I won't say which organization, but it's a big one. And like, yeah, there were all sorts of things like that where we're like, what the hell is going on with the housing is key site. But, you know, there there are some good, re- they have improved the resources on there. And that is theoretically where you're supposed to send everybody. And they do like have stuff about the local, local programs and local uh, resources, like a directory and stuff. But it's still a lot for somebody to navigate for sure. Yeah, I mean, even even when these things are robust and long established, they're still kind of a nightmare. I I uh, imagine how how bad this this must be. But so like uh, like a step back, like what what are we doing here? <laughs> like I mean, just in general, this whole landlord bailout. Like I mean, I'm trying to just like imagine like the whole point of this is landlords if they don't get paid, they will you know it will actually harm everybody because one they're going to go out of business fold up shop you know evict people whatever uh and like just you know there's going to be a massacre the banks are going to lose all their money on their mortgages it's just going to destroy the economy disrupt people so you know just the pragmatic thing to do 
bail out the landlords, everything would at least be stable. Like, in some way, it sounds like a hostage situation. Yeah. So, I mean, in what ways, like, is it not just, like, because I feel like when this happened, there is, you could look at it one way. This is a disaster waiting to happen. We should cushion the damage, do whatever it takes, right or wrong. Uh, and the other way is, like, this was a golden opportunity to have leverage against landlords. And really, we were talking rent strikes a year year ago, but, like, everything really fizzled out largely because... I, I don't know. I, I think it's it's a lot of kind of uh, sabotage from above, as it were. But like in general, I, I think the leverage against landlords was never really weaponized, at least from you know in any real way. Yeah, I'd agree with that. And I, I think what happened was because of the uncertainty from above, like that also contributed to a climate of fear. I mean, fear is really the operating phenomenon that was there. So there were folks who went on rent strikes. Um, and there were people who really didn't feel ready to do that. And, you know, we have to, like, because, like, of all the different organizations we represent, you know, there were different approaches that everybody took. We were trying to be respectful of all of their different approaches. Some of them, you know, some of our member organizations are more militant about that. Some of them are not. Um, there are folks in the tenant community who absolutely, like, want to organize for rent strikes and do court blockades, which we did do. Um, actually, one of my coworkers was arrested at one. Um, but, uh, but then also, and there was a lot of energy for court blockades, for example, like down, down in South Bay and close, like closer to where you are, um, yeah. where my coworker got arrested was in Santa Clara. Um, but, but there also like, there is also a sort of an inherent conservatism in some places too, to be quite honest, where, I mean, small C conservatism, not like political conservatism, but, you know, in, in sort of being like, well, we don't want to get people evic more people evicted, more people in trouble. And that's also fair. We had to kind of respect that, especially from like the lawyer side where people are like, well, you know, we don't want people who aren't like, it takes a you're not protected if you go on a rent strike. You really aren't. And that's the thing is like, there is no right to organize. You know, we tried tenants together. We, we spearheaded that bill. We tried to pass that bill. Like, in 2019 before the pandemic like we tenants don't have a right to organize um and they lost by one vote in the state senate despite getting a majority of votes so uh it, it you know that that is a consideration like there are really no protections for organizing it was a very confusing environment coming from the governor and from the legislature right um you know people so like a lot of that i think that's part of the reason a lot of that energy kind of dissipated Right. And it, and it definitely showed us how much more work we still have to do. But it showed like we, we've always known this. It's like we, we've always our goal has always been that we need to expand the, the movement to places in California that don't have a tenant infrastructure or organizing infrastructure, don't have those policies. And, you know, we have been making a lot of strides there. But when the pandemic hit, there were also a lot of places um, that still don't have that infrastructure, especially the further inland you go. And then those are also places that tend to have very right-wing legislators, whether they have a D next to their name or not. So, I mean, all of that was also a contributing factor. But, yeah, I mean, people, it, it, was, it was hard to get, like, everybody on the same page in terms of, like, pushing back because there's so much, I guess, hostility coming out of Sacramento. Yeah, if if SB five twenty nine, the tenant protection bill, uh, was actually in effect, how like do you think it had enough uh, you know juice in it to to really have made some interesting stuff happen during all this, or do you think that uh, it was like 
I'm just kind of wondering, like, w- like what's your fanfic of what would have happened if that was in place? I mean, there were some uh, rent strike protections that were unfortunately stripped out in appropriations. You know how that yeah. goes. Um, Senate appropriations speaks for itself. Um, but, you know, I-, I do think that there there were still some significant protections in there. And, of course, we would have had to see if they would be watered down in the assembly or they'd be strengthened in the assembly. Who knows? It's all counterfactual. But I do think that I do think that it would have uh, encouraged more people to organize. And a lot of people, it a lot of people have been radicalized and encouraged to organize because they're going through it right now, right? In the worst possible circumstances. And it's inspiring to see that, but it's still really tragic, right? Uh, but, you know, I, I do think that a right to organize, uh, I don't know if it would have overnight changed. There's just so much to go up against at the state level. Um, but I do think that it may have encouraged uh, more folks uh, to who didn't necessarily have to feel like because I can't pay rent, I could be evicted tomorrow anyway. And if I make a stink about it, I'm definitely going to be evicted. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think to to have the real like revolutionary force, you need to have people who feel they have nothing to lose. And it's a good thing, I suppose that we aren't at that level of bleakness, but it's still, you know, it's, it's a lose, lose in a lot of ways. You know, it's like, I think when people are gambling with the roof above their heads, that's not, that's not a good position to, to, you know, take, take risks on. Yeah. It's very, yeah. It's, it's a, it's a accelerationist. Um, we're, we're basically, we're basically doing through the inaction to tackle the housing crisis at the state level. We're basically accidentally doing accelerationism to, to people on the ground who are vulnerable yeah it's not it's not pretty and like right now like I, people are pulling up you know as, as far as we can get data on evictions uh right now and they're happening in places which are poor which are more minority you know uh, residents and which are lower vaccination it's like well, that's the that's the opposite of what you'd want to see this is the people with you know lower vaccinations uh, you want to make sure that these people aren't facing hardship on the street yeah yeah exactly and i mean a lot of the a lot of the coalition work we've been doing on these protections is with public health groups like bar high up in the bay area for example we're doing a lot of work with them because like i mean public health experts obviously i think very clearly identified how what a huge public health crisis this the the eviction crisis was off the bat and so they've been part of the fight uh with all with tenant groups um and i think that's pretty that's pretty notable Um, i mean i think at one like we did reports with them We've had press conferences with them, you know, like we've definitely the tenant community and the public health community we have been working together on this exactly for the reasons that you laid out. Yeah. But I mean, to take it like a you know, mile high view once more of like Econ 101, what's supposed to be happening is the housing providers, our landlords are supposed to. Why do they get rent increases? you know, year after year? It's because they're taking on risk, you know, or something. And, you know, in the end. No, they weren't. Like yeah. when 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 anything happened, they got bailed out a hundred percent. The banks got paid. Everyone got paid. Uh, and you know, it's in the money. Kind of, it's funny money from you know from DC, which is great. But like, it's kind of sad how it just kind of lubricates the worst in the system. But like the whole process, like as far as it goes, it really does look like it's like you know the powers in charge sit back and they kind of just talk with CAA and like. Do you want eighty percent? It's like I'm not sure about that. Let's make it a hundred percent. It's like okay, you got a deal. I don't know. It like it just feels very divorced from any reality, and it's more about just 
how do all these kind of elites pump money to make a ton of money while doing as little as possible? Yeah, it is propping. It's like it's it, in a sense you can look at it. You can look at this as part of just general. I mean, you know, I don't really care about deficit, federal deficits, money printer go burr, etc. I that's my position. But that that being said, I mean, you can kind of look at this as part of the whole pre and post two thousand eight, you know, sort of phenomenon that like we're we're just macroeconomically shoveling money and interest rates or whatever you whatever policy like. at this sort of I mean house of cards situation for like continuously appreciating property value and scarcity I mean you can look at this as part of that yeah I mean like if you're actually I mean I I I run the deficit as much as you can I I love it but you're supposed to be coupling this industrial policy to achieve good ends and like what are we doing we're just lining people who are largely not even doing anything just buying up you know, decades old properties sitting on it. And like the, you know, the, the industry of like just flipping real estate, like a lot of people are making a lot of money doing nothing. And like, it's, it's not good. And I don't, I don't, I don't see any real energy of moving from here to there because, you know, the entire American system and especially the California system is about, yeah, passive real estate speculation. (laughs) Like that's, that's what we have. Yeah, and I think that's a bipartisan consensus here in California and um, and federally. I mean, you still even I, I swear I was on calls with legislators, uh, and not all of them. You know, so there's some legislators that really went to bat for tenants. I don't want to just slam everybody, but um, but I have been on calls with legislators where we're you know we've got tenants on the line who are constituents talking about the absolute horror show that they're enduring right now, and then like for someone like for the legislator themselves to reply like we just need more like paths to home ownership and like I was like and I was like okay where I'm where I'm on the phone with you right now because like this person could be homeless tomorrow uh can we can we stick to this subject first because this is the perp this is why we're talking to you right like this is not the time to wax poetic about like if we just you know made everybody property owners it would be fine and that's the real tragedy etc cetera, etc cetera. because like it's like we got more pertinent stuff to talk about at the moment yeah and i guess like that's the thing like the kind of the passive real estate speculation that pyramid scheme like there's not really explicit victims every day i mean the victims you know the, you know kind of the main indirect victims are tenants who are facing hardship but the second one are people who can't get on the ladder because the ladder is just, you know, getting harder and harder to jump on. And, I mean, I to, if there's any sort of paradigm shift in which the politics change, I think it's younger people say, like, hey, wait, is this whole system really helping me? I think it's actually hurting me. But, you know, it's that's not reflected quite yet in what Sacramento and D.C. are up to yet, at least. No, not at all. And, you know, I mean, I maybe I live in my own bubble in terms of like who my friends are or aren't but i don't really know people who even want to own a home for uh for for property value purposes or like yeah it'll help me save for retirement or send my kids to college i mean <laughs> i don't even if they were even thinking of having kids but like it's more like well at least i won't get evicted no i mean that's that's realtors i mean realtors use this they weaponize this they say like oh buy a home it's a good investment but it's more than investment it means that you won't be precarious the rest of your life it's like boy it's like the precarity realtor industrial complex is strong like they love it yeah yeah and like i mean there was so much talk about 
even during their during the pandemic about home ownership opportunity, blah blah blah, from the state legislature, way more talk than there was about just stabilizing eighteen million renters. I mean, even now, like with this sort of disaster unfolding, uh, it wasn't enough to shake them. And I, I do think I, I do when I do have moments to myself, I do think about the implications of that because if this didn't do it, like what will? Yeah, I mean, like I, th- I mean, it is a pyramid scheme in my mind, and this is a—it's an earthquake under the pyramid, and it didn't collapse. So I guess we're gonna get a, you know, a couple more tiers of it, uh, but you know, well, we'll see. But uh, yeah, I think uh, to take off—I mean, any more—I mean, any more notes on kind of what the future is? Because I think you're saying like, the dust is cleared, we got this extension, and now like it looks like the rental assistance is really because it's a full bailout. The rental assistance is going to be divvied out, you know, big time. I, you have to assume. And is that is this the end of the story? Is this like okay, this happens, or like is there going to be another pass? Uh, put yourself in the record as predicting the future, <laughs> exactly what will happen. Yeah, I mean, I can tell you what I'm very concerned about in this bill. Now that I had to sit and read it for two hours yesterday, which was or day before, which was a fun time. This bill creates a very weird, I'm calling it a dead zone because it really, it's like a legislative dead zone. So the extension of protections expire October 1st, everybody's on the hook for theoretically for 100% of their rent again um, that they owe for that month. So October 1st comes along, they've created this period between October and the end of March um, where uh Theoretically, uh, landlords are not supposed to evict any tenant who qualified for the rent relief program and received rent relief. Um, mm-hmm. So if the tenant qualified, they are protected from eviction as long as they dotted their I's, crossed their T's, you know, filled out the application, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. But that's all happening in the courts, which is a lot of tenants just don't go to court because they can't afford lawyers, right? Um, it's pretty easy to hoodwink someone. Like, don't tell them. Are they going to know? It's This is exactly, complicated. Exactly. So it's very complicated. So that protection is supposed to be there until the end of March. But the, the really, if that were on its own, that would be better than nothing. But the really messed up and insidious thing that they also put in there is that uh, local jurisdictions are once again preempted from passing any protections, additional protections about non-payment evictions for that whole time. So, for example, San Francisco like cannot like I believe I'm double checking. I believe the the most recent extension that it passed a couple of weeks ago is invalidated by this. But um, I- effectively, yeah, they're they're tying uh, uh, like San Francisco or Los Angeles. Los Angeles might be able to get around it. We'll see. But they're basically tying the ability of local municipalities who do want to do something better to do something better during that period to kind of stave off like a bunch of people having to go to court. And that is really scary to me um, because the way that it's really written and laid out, I mean, as a tenant, you have to, you have to get everything right. You cannot mess up at any step of the rent relief application process or you are eligible for eviction. Yeah. I mean, I guess my prediction is always is like, okay, there's like a there is an acceptable you know room for evictions. This always happens. This always will happen. We don't care. Just as long as kind of people get paid, the system works. Like this is this is this is tolerable. Uh, and you know, if 
if this new paradigm is in that, you know, happy zone for them of, oh, acceptable evictions, then like everything's fine. But if it tilts enough that people don't get paid, then you'll get another, you know, bailout. I don't like that's at least my that's at least my read, cynical read on what would happen. Yeah, their strategy insofar as they, they've had a strategy at the state level, like from the beginning, it's always been about foaming the runway. So it's like it's don't make it look like such a huge, massive eviction cliff, right? In the press, that don't make the you know like like muddy the narrative just enough yeah. that these sort of like you said like the accept that the acceptable machinery of evictions like continues, but it's like but but it can be safely ignored. Yeah, and then also it's like it's like use you know raise concerns about evictions enough that you know money flows to landlords but don't raise it enough that things actually get fixed well you know that's a tricky balance but they're they're playing it you know like a beautifully yeah although to some degree with the lack of success with the rent relief program and other things the the one uh, you know i don't want to be totally negative but the one thing i will say like uh, in a positive direction is i really do believe that you know tenant groups despite what we were up against we were able to uh change the narrative to the point where you know the apartment association is very upset that there is like they're mad at the narrative of struggling tenants being pretty dominant right so being able to make that being able to make that narrative dominant was tough but it did happen and we did manage to accomplish that and when you have you know um when you have a leadership when you have leadership at this level of state government that is uh you know and a governor especially who's very attuned to what is happening in the press, which is often really the only way to get to them, um, to get them to care about something <laughs> is is through the, the press and the court of public opinion. Yeah. We're able to do that. And it is possible that they wouldn't have extended it at all had we not done that. So and I wonder, like, yeah, court of public opinion, I wonder if the fact the landlords got bailed out will be something that, you know, tenants can use forever just to kind of say, like, boy, what an awful rigged system. And like, I think this is on their heads. This is going to be on their heads. And, you know, they got paid, but they're going to like, they're going to have to pay for, for, for this. We should, we absolutely should make that a narrative forever. Every time it's like you did like the wall street bailout. People still talk about the wall street bailout. Absolutely. So we should be talking about the landlord bailout because I mean, it was very much like the, the news administration very much went on a deliberate PR offensive with, you know, a, and it confused a lot of folks who were asking me about it. Like, is this new information? Because what had happened was a couple months ago, he had made a splashy announcement that, you know, he was going to cover 100 percent. Right. And then a couple weeks ago, it was like reported in The New York Times and everybody was making a really big deal about it he repackaged the same announcement. And so people were coming to me and being like, is there new money? Is there a change? Uh, Is Mm. there an update? And I was like, no. Um, He took the same thing and then just uh, splashed it back out and people fell for it. Um, Mm. And like, there was some very, I mean, there was some very sharp uh, uh, pointed criticism at him from, for example, from uh, Dean Preston, who wrote a whole thread about this, basically having to explain to people, this is not new information, you guys. But it's very clear that 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 second round uh, was very much about PR. And I do think this is about, you know, sort of shoring up they're shoring up political bona fides uh, in a, you know, you know, there's a recall going on. Let's I'm not I can't say I know what is going on in the news administration in terms of their political calculus. But if I had to guess, I would suspect that had something to do with it. 
Yeah, I mean that's that's the two big machines. There's the real estate banking, you know, industri- industrial, you know, complex, and then there is the kind of Gavin Newsom, uh, you know, hair cream, you know, spotlight complex, and like it's, and like this whole recall is making everything three times as bad because everybody is like. Uh, like the Democrats are cowed into complete solidarity of like we will protect Gavin and like okay this this sucks <laughs> this is bad yeah absolutely and it's very much like if you're criticizing him you're helping the Republicans it's very much the attitude that's going on out there yeah so okay so I think that's I mean any other final notes on on like on just where the future of this kind of extension is. I just like want to ask like a, you know brief things about like what housing now is and is up to. Um, if you want to kind of get into that for a, a second. Yeah. So uh, so housing housing now is like a coalition that's like a, on a, a bit broader. It doesn't just deal with tenants' rights, but other housing policy. Um, and it's anchored by a bunch of statewide groups. Um, and it also includes like you know labor and other policy advocacy organizations that don't necessarily just exclusively or generally do tenant rights stuff so it's kind of like the big umbrella but we've been with our coalition it's kind of funny we're like there's our coalition and there's their coalition we have like a lot of members in common and then we have the coalition of the coalition the super group if you will but basically we've all been doing this work through like something called the keep families house coalition um which is housing now and our members tend us together and our members um and uh like you know uh, seiu 1021 um a lot of local groups who have been able to pick up the work across like bay area central valley um central coast socal so we've got like anchor organizations there um and so we've been coordinating we've basically all been sharing work uh this whole time because we don't really have time to be siloed and not doing anything um and so that's kind of like our, our big super group that we made for the year, uh, the pandemic super group, if you will. It's called the Keep Families House Coalition. Yeah, and it seems, I mean, I, I it seems like really promising energy that from here, not only can this, you know, work to put out fires, but also fight for social housing, do like do proactive stuff, which is, you know, something that we've lacked a kind of proactive energy for for. for for decades and decades. So I don't know. I see a lot of good energy there. Yeah. Yeah. And there is a lot of enthusiasm for social housing. That's also why we're like embarking on, you know, tenants together and ACE and a bunch of groups are embarking on an effort to kind of like educate tenant organizers about social housing and make sure that they feel that like social housing is something that's relevant and like an organic demand that's coming out of the work that they're doing right now. So that's definitely a big focus of ours. And it is good. It is good to be, like to be proactive it is good to do proactive work i think people feel enthusiastic about doing proactive work precisely because of the amount of reactive work we have been forced to do yeah and i feel just look at the like the 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 momentums of different politics like we're talking about the kind of like just the standard real estate machine is just slogging nothing's facing off maybe it will like maybe it will collapse because of demographic shifts in some sort of sad way but you know what is a risk the passive real estate accumulation would be if there is actually a new machine of you know housing which is you know actually undermines that system so like those can't get along you know passively making money and then kind of you know abundant social housing like those do not play well together. So there's a fight coming, and I'm looking forward to it. Me too. I, I'm, you know, I'm all about heightening the contradictions. Hell yeah. Uh, 
One, one more thing, just because I mean, I standard policy not to about SF, uh, but I will I'll I'll put that aside because I mean there's there's some interesting stuff happening uh, there, and I'm just kind of curious to pick apart you know, why it is. But to put, take off your you know tens together hat and put on, uh, you're also involved with the San Francisco Community Land Trust. I am. I joined the board uh, last year, late last year. Yeah, so so say more. Uh, like, well, what's well, what's what's the theory? What's the reality? You know, because um, you know, I, I would love to see this kind of you know this virus of a land trust take over all of that cursed city and and make it <laughs> and take away this uh, uh, this kind of you know homeownership, you know, landlord, you know, real estate dread. But you know, uh, it seems like it's it's kind of it's kind of a small little you know seed, as it were, right now. Yeah, yeah. So it was established, actually, I think back in 2003. But, um, you know, it's been successively funded or not funded um, uh, through different sources. Some some of it is city money through something called the Small Sites Program. The way, and, and, you know, different land trusts fund, function very differently. Um, so, for example, like there's like EV Prec, which is, I like their, their, they've got something cool in their model, which is, it's a permanent real estate cooperative is what it stands for where you can <clears throat> basically pitch in like a thousand bucks and become uh, own a share. Like you can become kind of a shareholder in what that is a peer REIT model. Yeah. Yeah. You, well, you basically, you get to vote on decisions. So you're, it's almost like member dues. Um, and then they basically they tell you, we're going to hold on to this thousand bucks for X many years and give you X interest on it. And it's just fixed. Right. Um, and that's, that's different from the SF models. So different people are doing different models, right. Of input. But the SF model was basically fun set up to where the, the land trust is a kind of its own nonprofit, but it is partly funded by the city, um, and it and it's acquired small sites where uh, it, mostly smaller sites. Um, although we're trying to acquire bigger buildings now, um, but it's acquiring sites where you know there has been a threat of eviction, um, like threat of mass eviction, and and, and basically trying to uh, outbid the private market on those properties, which is tough, right? always that's that's always tough to do especially in sf considering how much they are go for these days um but you know i mean and i and there's also a lot of like tenant you know there's there's tenant uh participation on the boards like the board has to have uh, tenant members on it um it's mostly the board is mostly just like dedicated volunteers uh who really actually care about this um, from different backgrounds who actually like want to see this model grow and succeed but of course, you know, funding is is consistently a challenge, and there is in San Francisco like a huge policy bias against or that that doesn't favor rather uh, co-ops or land trusts or land banking or or any of those things. Uh, that kind of goes towards you know uh, the sort of a hundred percent affordable LIHTC stuff, and it's tough too because a hundred percent affordable new production is like very very scarce there's a huge shortage of it and there's a huge demand for it um and that's the one thing that like you know i think people on different parts of the land use debate are happy about no one's ever unhappy to see a 100 percent affordable building go up well well some people some people are still very upset you know uh, yeah um the one but there's more unity there's 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 a but there are more overlapping groups of people who like the 100% affordable who might disagree with each other and SF on different things and there's such a huge demand for it right but it also kind of means that like I, I think LIHTC is definitely preferred uh, to the point to the detriment of anything else that might be 
innovative, whether it's the land trust or now whether it's social housing, there is definitely an institutional bias against trying new things. Um, and that is something that I think people are really starting to run into. Um, and of course, like we're, there's a lot of work to do for advocates for all of these different new models to, uh, or new models or existing models, but beefing up existing models. But for us, there there's a lot of uh, work that we have to do to kind of uh, break through that and like affect some organize for some kind of paradigm shift. Yeah. Right now, it's very much like Litex's the only game in town, and so even though like SF has a ginormous city budget, the amount that is really going into any kind of land trusting, land banking, co oping, etc., is like pennies. Yeah, I mean, like in, I, I mean, call me a cynic, but I think part of the reason like Litex is like always rubber stamps like oh that's the solution everyone agrees on like it can't go big you know it's a valuable program for deeply affordable housing but like necessarily you need the check the check comes from the from the banks you know taxes it's all it's all weird but like you like you can never scale it like to the degree it needs to be as opposed to social housing with you know cross subsidization like that can go huge land trust if you don't right, that could go huge and i think that scares people like people don't want that kind of challenge they don't they don't and i yeah like i said like obviously i'm biased but it's not uh any, any challenges that we face is not due to a lack of ambition from the people who are actually contributing to the land trust who work for the land trust um but essentially what we what we do is what what, what we have in sf so far and we definitely want to go bigger um, is you know a portfolio um, of properties where we've just tried where we've had just to save and stabilize tenants from some sort of mass eviction like an Ellis Act or you know um, properties that have been kind of uh, manipulated uh, with properties full of rent controlled tenants that have been manipulated by some of these bigger landlords um, in SF like of Mosser or Veritas who've been very exploitative or tried to like get rent controlled tenants out so we're kind of like it, it, we're kind of a last resort for people who need to be saved and that's important to take that housing and put it in public hands but we could definitely be more ambitious if we had a little more money that's for sure yeah yeah i mean it's the the, the i mean the crisis as it were is a fact like i mean as, as far as the narrative works in my head you know in the 1970s that was kind of the bottom of the market as far as urban real estate plummeting and san francisco wasn't as you know, it didn't empty out as much as a new york or uh, other cities, inner cities, but you know it did plummet, and a lot of people like you, you kind of see like some. That's where some people's landlording is kind of almost a kind of pastoral, you know, small operation started, and then you know now these people are old and dying, and what happens? Like they want to get out of the business, and can they? Like it's like if they get out of the business by selling out to. An, uh, an optimizing firm that's just going to evict everybody that's 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 there's some major issues there so you want to cushion the blow and to cushion the blow though like you need money and you need money that scales up with the rise of real estate and that kind of value capture is hard to do at scale and that's that's a challenge at least as i understand it yeah it's very much the value capture we have versus the value capture we need you know <laughs> yeah i mean, like a, a measure i prop i you know like that's a bit of value capture but can it really scale enough it's and you know it can't even get there it's i mean that's the whole real estate transfer they got some money but then also even when sf this money is being like held hostage even though it's you know it's it, 
it's it's tiny based upon the size of what you need. Yeah, I mean, we went to the it was a, it was structured to go to the general fund, and I think that you know I mean a lot of a lot of I'm sure a lot of the listeners have varying degrees of opinion on Prop I based off of who proposed it, et cetera. And but what I will say or ask people to consider is that you know because of well first of all because of Howard Jarvisism um, <laughs> already you know making it very hard to raise dedicated revenue, um, but also because Prop I like even those of us who are fighting hard for it. We didn't know if it was going to pass. We were actually, I was surprised that it passed with 58% of the vote because it was outspent 15 to 1, possibly 20. I kind of lost track of the numbers towards the end. Everybody in San Francisco was getting more, I mean, I certainly was uh, getting more anti-prop eye mailers than I was getting mailers for any other race last year. I mean, including, I mean, it was a presidential election. Um so, I mean, that was, I think, part of the calculus. And so it was always going to be a gamble with general fund stuff, which I don't want to get too wonky. But basically, that means is that like that money, even if the voters vote for it to go to a certain thing, that money can be redirected towards other things in the budget. Um, yeah, well, it would have been nice if it goes straight to where you want it to go. But, you know, thanks to Prop 218, Howard Jarvis, uh, you know, you can't unless it's two thirds. So like everything's broken. Yeah, everything's broken. Exactly. And so we knew like I think everybody involved knew that it was going to be a fight. Obviously, the results are still pretty, you know, we managed to get some of it for rent relief. But it was also very clear, like, you know, the mayor, Bear Breed, made it very clear when she was point blank asked about social housing, about Prop I. She said, I don't think it makes sense to invest in brand new programming. I'm quoting her almost verbatim. I don't think it makes sense to think about brand new programming when we have a housing crisis, an economic crisis to solve now, which is already weird for two reasons. Like one, theoretically, this cycle around a lot of this, or not theoretically, most of this money would probably go in the immediate term to rent relief because we have that. And and most, a lot of it has, right? Because we fought for it, which technically, if you have a housing crisis to solve now you would want more uh, rent relief money where you don't have to worry about the state's strings right um being attached but uh, that part was weird but you know effectively she was saying you know social housing is brand new programming and i don't really believe in it um and i'm sure (laughs) how can you argue like this well what sf is doing is working so well so why try anything new i don't understand and that is an institutional attitude that's not just coming from one person um that is that is that is a consensus attitude like in sf if it ain't broke don't fix it and it's like look around you i it is i'm not trying to say that we should abolish litec immediately or something like that i'm just saying like is is what we have enough clearly it isn't and so i mean i i it's kind of a bugaboo of mine but aside from i know there's a lot of attention to fourplexes but the next time somebody writes an is san francisco progressive column like i would like them to also talk about the fact that social housing is different social housing uh, alternatives or even just beginning to have the conversation about what that would look like in a formal way like that that's being stymied here um, because I think that's also a calculation for is SF progressive on housing but it doesn't get as much press coverage yeah I mean I'm just like the entire politics of SF because I feel like it seems like the board of, of supervisors is you know is, is part of the progs and the mayor is a mod and like it seems like this like pattern where they pass stuff and then like kind of the mayor's office just swallows it and says no we're not doing that it's like like okay yeah aren't you supposed you have a strong mayor isn't this because they're supposed to be able to do stuff it seems like sf is putting a lot more energy into not doing stuff yeah i would agree wholeheartedly with that assessment um (laughs) 
And it's it's very much like, and it's it's wild to me too. I mean, it's not surprising, but you know, I mean, it, it is very much like limiting. Like, I, there's always going to be debates and fighting and stuff over market rate housing. But there are like real like everyone who at least isn't a straight up NIMBY who does sort of agree that we need to have a serious shortage of uh, housing for people who can't afford market rate. You know, that is a the, the people will say that they believe that. But then when it comes to actually trying to do something new about it, nobody wants to do anything new about it. Not nobody, but a lot of people, people in charge certainly don't. Or they just like, I don't know if it's like a lack of imagination. I don't know. There is a lot yeah. of imagination for sure, but you know, sure. yeah, be seeing seeing social housing be derisively referred to as brand new programming while it's like there's a pilot across the bay potentially being looked into in like Berkeley, for example. I mean, that's that's pretty telling to me that like you know, and again, I am biased because I supported Prop I, I support social housing, and I've been appointed to an oversight board that was supposed to meet and is now violating the administrative code because we haven't been allowed to meet yet. Like that is absolutely like bureaucratic. Is that incompetence, or do you think there's actually? I mean, I guess you don't know what anyone is in their heads, but like that doesn't seem good. No, I, I just I I think that there's a sense from City Hall that social housing isn't real, and and so like it's like a perfect circle of like, well, if you make it impossible to even begin to make it real, of course it's not going to be real. I really, I mean. I, I like I feel like there's there's some young good energy but I feel like if like SF discouraged me so much because like for being uh ostensibly a progressive city like you get the old guard progs who I will you know I mean my take at least is like they're kind of happy with the status quo as long as it doesn't get worse we'll take it like it's mostly harm reduction uh, which depress it's small C conservatives like it's like I get it it's good to avoid harms but like you know you're you've been boiling the frog for decades and then like the mods in SF like for a city which is like look at Fox News describing it like all like these people are just they want to expunge homeless people they want to just they are upset about uh you know this the school like the school board and I don't know like all these people like it's like to me just blood and soil just crazies and like that is the politics sf i don't know it's just it's very dispiriting no that's that's pretty much spot on that is kind of like you've got you can you can sort of pick your poison and i know it's particularly hard because yeah the, the mods are the ones who theoretically i mean i it remains some some of them are more actually in favor of changing zoning and things like that and some of them are quite frankly are just pretending because it gets them plotted it, they don't actually care uh that's just it but you know siding with mods also means that you have to side with a lot of very horrifying opinions on uh on uh, uh policing on homelessness on on criminal justice um some pretty abhorrent stuff you're gonna you're siding with people who send mailers with pictures of tents on them you know uh, we People probably know who I'm referring to there. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I mean, a mayor who calls the cops on homeless people and says social housing. She might want to build more market rate housing, but she says social housing is uh, BS. And uh, again, like, has literally is called personally calling the police on homeless encampments that she drives by. So, you know, pick your poison. Yeah. I mean, I feel like it's like, 
I mean, I can, I can, like, I criticize the progs in SF for being too small C conservative, but like, even like, what is the mods version of change? Like, it is, oh, we will open the faucet on market rate housing another five to ten percent. Like, we'll get like in over decades, it will slowly get better. In the meantime, we're gonna throw the homeless into a furnace. Like, we're gonna like, you know, strong line order. Uh, but eventually we'll kind of make a, a happier medium like that to me, like is not like that's not the right angle of change. I think I mean, really, if you open up the faucet of social housing and say, hey, you know, take the entire sunset, uh, everything is 30 stories now of social housing like that's that's real change. Yeah, it's either you you can either decide to like kind of just push back, you know, and, and I know like progressives people like it, I I'm a socialist, I wouldn't consider myself a progressive personally, but you know, I take to heart or understand that criticism um from people where it's like do you want to freeze SF and Amber? No, I absolutely don't. But like is is the mod vision of change like an equitable vision of change? Absolutely not. Um it's pretty horrifying actually because it is exactly like you said, like throw home, throw the poor into a furnace. Um, but build some more market rate housing. Uh, and I mean, I think that's the, that maybe that's why everybody thinks Litech is a great status quo because you're building, you know, you still get to cut the ribbon on 100% affordable development every once in a while, just a trickle of them to look like you're doing something. And then it's like not anything remotely close to the scale that would actually be needed. So, I mean, so what is, if the mayor's office is able to unilaterally shut down the social housing, you know, board or commission or whatever, like, what, what's, like, what's, what's, what do you see as a future of, 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 of getting momentum here? It's the same thing. It's just that it's no shortcuts to coalition building. There aren't, you know, I mean, I'm glad we passed those ballot measures because the whole thing was that was supposed to start heightening the contradiction, so to speak. It was supposed to start, um, opening some floodgates it's supposed to, it was supposed to generate conflict i and i think it has it just that conflict unfortunately hasn't panned out like to the to the best of our expectations for the people who want to see social housing built in sf but you know there was going to be a fight we do want to have a fight but i think in the future i mean everybody who's invested there needs to be a coalition of everybody who's invested in actually like building uh, affordable housing at scale and building social housing and there are different groups who are interested in it. Like, I personally think we need to bring in community groups from across the city. Um, you know, people have different visions of, about the kind of what my social housing might be to them. Some people might want co-ops. You know, when I talk to people and I've tried to talk to a lot of people, you know, there's some some groups will be like, well, actually, I we, we think our version of opportunity is actually being able to move from this neighborhood to like affordable housing and pack heights. And then some people are like, well, I want, we want to be able to stay in my neighborhood. I'm facing displacement. This is my community, et cetera. Uh, there's obviously interests in labor who would be naturally aligned because they can't house their workforce, whether it's firefighters or teachers or nurses, et cetera. It's really like we have to get everybody together because until like until there's basically we have to make the situation politically untenable for um, for the people who are trying to oppose social housing. That's that's really it. And everybody's kind of off doing their own thing right now. We don't have like an integrated housing I, we don't have the integrated housing coalition that we really need to to win this stuff. Uh, that's across all of the issues. But the thing is, the need is definitely there, and the issue is definitely at the front of everybody's mind. So it's really about organizing um, some kind of policy consensus and some kind of uh, front, uh, really, to start getting really aggressive about this. I mean, so it seems like kind of like the first battleground is the me- like the prop I money. You know, it's half of 128 million a year. 
like make sure it actually is used to acquire as much as you can uh, which is like I mean it's sad to say you know oh 60 million that's not enough real money but it's 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 a start uh, but if you're if you're doing if like and I guess the thing is like the amount of the crisis of just kind of the entire you know the entire like aging out of kind of the the, the quaint little landlords that's happening like how do you how do you move into the next value capture regime or something like do you have do you have thoughts of like what's next what's what's bigger yeah i mean um it's it's tough i, I definitely think and you know like it, it's hard to find a lot of empty lots or things like that in sf but people have been trying to get creative like you know there was a push with this uh with juvenile hall closing thank goodness that was a really good thing that the progressives did um, but that's that's also next to the gas station that was pretty controversial because they were trying to renew the lease for the gas station. Despite oh, the, twi- the Twin Peaks, the public gas station? Yeah, when you combine the Twin Peaks gas station plot with the juvenile hall plot that's adjacent, that's 50,000 square feet of land, um, most of all of which is publicly owned, that you could start land developing with, right? Like there are options to start having pilots, to get creative and, and that uh, and I think that that is something we absolutely can be doing now and you know we can be partnering with community organizations that maybe a pilot in the mission or pilot in Twin Peaks or pilot in the Bayview is going to look different and that's okay that's good um, you know some people want co-ops more like they want co-op ownership some people are fine being tenants like it's it, it's very much like you know have it we could definitely start we have enough to start innovating pilots now right yeah and, and well, seeing what sticks but it's just more that that part there's more of a lack of willingness to do that we do have some public lands to work with and it doesn't always have to be this sort of um you know kind of convoluted public private partnership stuff that we've been relying on in the past which is which is tough you know i mean especially like a lot of these sort of private landlords slash developers who are involved in uh some of these uh some of these deals like you know avalon bay is a great example they're part of the Balboa Reservoir development. And I'm, I'm, I don't want to, the Balboa Reservoir development is very much like, you know, they say like a camel is a horse designed by a committee. Like nobody's happy yeah. what came out of that. But that's an example, for example, it's difficult when, you know, the same Avalon Bay is in other parts of California, a very bad landlord, right? Mm. So it's like when you get into these kind of murky, LIHTC, public, part, private partnership stuff, it, it's not ideal. And then nobody comes out of it happy. People, some people want it to be more units. Other people want it to be more affordable units. Some people both. Uh, some people didn't want it at all, of course. Um, but, you know, it, it's very much like we have enough public land. And, like, I think that I think there is enough willpower if you actually wanted to to start start putting these pilots out, these community pilots. But we're not, you know, it, it's purely a lack of will or a lack of imagination that's stopping that from happening. Yeah, I definitely, I definitely agree that like it, it's on the tap, like what are, what is the city already doing with its public lands? Not enough, you know, not well, not in the, in the ownership and development regime leaves a lot to be desired. So I think you're right that like play with the public lands you have, figure out what works better because it ain't this. Uh, but then on top, I mean, it's like, I mean, in the long term, you are cannibalizing a limited quantity to begin with. And like, how do you get from here? Like, how do you get from here to there? Because you're not going to toy with existing public lands forever. Yeah, yeah. And that, that that's harder. I don't I don't know if I how much I like, I'm just trying. It's always like just trying to get from A to B and then B to C. 
but you know yeah. like what it's actually going to look like if we can get it built but yeah i mean that's an open question it's 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 hard to know right now because we can't really even these sort of tentative first steps are being blocked and we have to unstick them before we can even start having those conversations about long-term vision but we yeah we do have public land available we should be act strategically analyzing it um and you know we should be strategically analyzing like how much can we you know even if we have all the prop by funds like you said it's not a ton in terms of how much new housing costs to build but like how do you get creative with it do you do you combine that with a public bank which is being advocated for um and like create some kind of financing program where you like contract things contract development out etc but then the, eventually like the actual housing itself is still publicly democratically controlled you know do you use yeah can you do you finance do you land bank do you you know do you like there's always like weird tricks like could you create land subsidy by saying oh public lands can be developed at like 40 times the density so then like e even the city could acquire you know, parcels at a certain amount, but then because they have an edge in developing it, they can make it gigantic and then they can make a lot of money. And that could be like the, that could be the sort of Vienna thing where it's contracted out to private developers. You get labor on board if you're like, well, this is going to be good union labor, things like that. Or like if it's, you're going to do rehab projects, things like that. Like, I mean, there's, there's plenty of rehab work to be done to, um, you know, there is still public housing in San Francisco. Not all of it has been privatized uh, by nonprofits. Um, so there's investment work that needs to be done there. And that investment work can also be a means to achieve a model as long as the tenants who are in there are included and are driving that change. There's there's things to there's a lot of different ideas to throw at the wall. But and I think the idea that my hope was for at least for this oversight body, even though it's not really an oversight body with much power. My hope was that we could at least start ha making that a space for those conversations. But it's clear to me that we need to find another space um, at this point. <laughs> what well, so 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 the like the sixty million plus like is that like for this year or next year? Is that like is anything going to be happening with the SFCLT to use it, or is this all locked up? Um, I think it's pretty much for this this coming fiscal year. It's all locked up. You know, most of it went. I mean, some of it inevitably. It is general fund money, so some of it, a lot of it went to cops. Let's be honest. <laughs> that's where it went. Um, and that's basically insofar as uh, they're trying to. Some progressives, or some are, some aren't. From what I hear, uh, trying genuinely to claw some of it back looks like there's a tentative deal to get some of it back but that's going into rent relief it's going to be it's basically we have to be prepared for this to be an annual rigmarole not just like the the, yeah, the clt isn't get i don't think getting anything out of or not getting much or if anything um any i don't think they're getting any news for funding commitments although i'd have to double check that um it's hard to know exactly what the final proposal is because it's coming out like now ish soon um and how many how many properties per year could you get on 60 million um, per year with 60 million, I mean, probably like three, four, five. It really depends on the size. It could be four, you know. It's not, yeah. it's not a ton, but the thing is, like, you know, we're at least at the land trust, like, we're very careful about property acquisition because it's also about, you know, trying to make sure, like, and that can be very difficult, like, making sure that there's, like, you know, that things are, that the, the maintenance is up to code and and that like you know tenants actually feel some sense of like ownership and integration into the process that they don't just feel like they're being batted around to another landlord but it's a nonprofit this time 
So we're more like deliberate about it anyway. We're not like acquiring a bajillion properties. Not that we could afford it at this point. But yeah, but well, it's, it's all it's all pretty bleak though. Like it's you know costs you know tens of millions per for you know the, the right way. But in the meantime, you know the Black Rocks, then also the fly by night house flippers are just you know buying up everything at, at you know a bargain rate. Yeah, I think we're going to have to in SF. I mean, like, yeah, like, you know, your Blackstones, et cetera, like, they don't really, they don't really go after San Francisco. Like, San Francisco, the players are like, you're a Veritas or a Mosser who's buying up, you know, dozens and dozens of rent-controlled buildings and then basically trying, putting the squeeze on the tenants, right? Um, mm. That's, it's, so Blackstone, Blackrock, that kind of stuff, that's more of a problem out like you know the further up you go the i-80 corridor where you're seeing like where you saw like post 2008 foreclosures where you're sure they're pl- like it's they're the, the the frontier of exurban suburban you know yeah, stuff they, which, they're buying yeah. those in advance knowing that you know anticipating continual appreciation anticipating that the demand will become higher in those places because people will be continually pushed out they'll be looking to buy or rent further and further and further out of the urban areas so, like, it's different kinds of big property speculation. It's it's a different beast here. Um, with you here in SF, we're really seeing, like, the acquisition of existing multifamily buildings by these big guys. And then, especially if they have rent-controlled tenants, and then putting the squeeze on them. That's more of what's going on in SF proper. Yeah, so uh, we've been talking for a bit. Any, any final notes of stuff that people should, uh, you know, keep an eye on? Anything to check out uh, before we wrap up? No, I mean we're 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 starting we're starting to fight for social housing at the state level and locally, et cetera. There's going to be bumps on the road, you know. We just at this point we just have to keep chugging, um, and we're going to keep doing that um, both on a state level and locally. I mean, there's it's going to be it's going to be tough, but you know it's really just it's really just the beginning. And what what's happened with sort of the even the prop I or like an AB three eighty seven is it's supposed to start a fight, not finish it. Well, cool. Well, thanks, thanks for thanks for uh, you know uh, having the having the time to share all the details, of all this. It's a lot of a lot of stuff. Yeah, yeah. No, thank you for having me. As always, it's always it's always nice to vent a little bit. <laughs> cool, cool. Okay. Well, until till next time. All right. We have been talking to Shanti Singh all about the latest round of eviction moratoria, landlord bailouts, and much more. You can find this episode of the podcast at the website. See the cat. This is a presentation of KZSU, Stanford.